KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Since the pandemic started, the United States has been under a public health emergency. It gives hospitals the opportunity to expand spaces and services. It allows for the emergency use of new medicines and vaccines. But in late January, the Biden administration announced it's putting an end to this declaration on May 11th. Does this mean the pandemic is done and that COVID isn't a concern anymore? We still have very vulnerable people in our communities who are getting sick and end up in the hospital and in some cases dying of COVID-19. And somehow we're not seeing that anymore. It's not front page news, but that's still real. Dr. Esther Chernak is the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel University. She believes the public health emergency was a step in the right direction for obtaining universal access to health care, but now not so much. It's a return to business as usual, and I think our business as usual healthcare system leaves a lot to be desired, and that's unfortunate. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In Depth, we break down what it means to be in a public health emergency and what ending it means for us right now and for the future of healthcare in our country. Can you just kind of explain what a public health emergency declaration is what it does i mean obviously we've been living under one for COVID 19 for years now but this is much more than just a government saying something is bad right there's a lot that's tied into this sure so from a global perspective the world health organization has something called public health emergency of international concern and designating an, an emergency sort of puts things into action at the global level or the World Health Organization level in terms of activating resources around investigation and disease control measures. In the U.S., when we declare emergencies, whether it's a health emergency or a weather-related emergency, it typically has the effect of, of waiving or loosening regulations or laws that enable a more rapid response to ensure public safety. You know, before a snowstorm, will be an emergency declared and there are certain rules around parking that are waived and for the public health emergency when that was declared at the beginning of the pandemic that enabled a number of things to happen and in many ways what it what it tried to do was expand key health related services to ensure equitable access to measures that would help contain the pandemic and and maintain health. The public health emergency gave hospitals and other healthcare entities waivers to allow them to become more nimble in terms of expanding spaces, offering additional services, using non-traditional spaces for clinical care. And the declaration also enabled emergency use of uh, new medications and new vaccines so that they could reach people more quickly and more equitably and ideally contain the pandemic and contain disease transmission. So who has the power here? In some quick reading for me, it seemed like that the Secretary of Health and Human Services kind of was the point person for declaration and then the announcement that it's the public health emergency will end. Who's got the power? Yes, so that's right. It is this responsibility of the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. In fact, there's actually multiple emergency declarations that that kind of work together to afford more authority and flexibility for the emergency response. But the main one, I think, is the declaration of the public health emergency that's declared by the Secretary of Department of HHS, Health and Human Services. And in the COVID pandemic, it was initially declared January 2020 as a part of the Public Health Service Act. And generally, the declaration lasts for 90 days and has to be renewed to continue. So, of course, it's been renewed multiple times, most recently February 2023, and it will expire May 11, 2023. But in addition to that, 
A national emergency declaration was issued by former President Trump in March of 2020 uh, as part of a different piece of legislation, the National Emergencies Act. And that is in effect until terminated by the president or through joint resolution of Congress. And it will continue through May 11, 2023. So it will coincide with the ending of the public health emergency. But in addition to that, there was a separate emergency declaration related to the FDA issued by the Secretary of HHS in February 2020, which justified the use of emergency use authorizations to allow the what we call medical countermeasures, the vaccines and the medications for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 to be used. So that declaration was promulgated so that we would have better access to safe and effective medications that were so new they weren't quite approved by the FDA yet. So that emergency declaration still exists. The timing to conclude that hasn't really been determined, but I don't believe it will end on May 11. And then finally, there's the declaration under the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, the PREP Act, that was issued by the Secretary of HHS in March of 2020, which provides liability immunity for activities related to COVID-19 medical countermeasures. And I believe that will expire in October of 2024. The main things are part of that initial declaration of a public health emergency, but there's a couple of different things that are working together, and it can be hard for the general public to figure out what's happening under which declaration. Before we get into what changes on May 11th, as a public health professional, what do you feel about this being allowed to expire on May 11th? I mean, frankly, as a layman, I know we are still in a pandemic. It doesn't feel like it. You occasionally see people wearing masks, but past that, life feels really close to what it was in January of 2020. Are we making a mistake? in your opinion, with this? Or is it just time? How do you kind of come down on this? That's a tough question. And I guess I have two reactions. One is, I think when you say the emergency is over, it implies that everything is over, that we no longer have a problem. And as a public health professional, as an infectious disease physician, I see a lot of COVID cases still happening. And I know that as a country, we have hundreds of deaths per day related to COVID, and we are still seeing more mortality related to COVID than we do in a bad flu season. And so I don't feel the pandemic is over. I don't think this is where we're going to land or where we're going to live for the rest of our days. It's certainly endemic, but I think at some point we will see less COVID-19 transmission. We're not there yet. We are still seeing a lot of COVID-19 transmission. And Certainly saying that the that we're no longer in a under a state of emergency implies that we no longer have a lot of community transmission and and that's not true. And we still have very vulnerable people in our communities who are getting sick and end up in the hospital and in some cases dying of COVID-19. And somehow we're not seeing that anymore. It's not front page news, but that's still real. If you're living with a kidney transplant or a lung transplant, if you're undergoing cancer chemotherapy, if you're 95 years old and may or may not have underlying medical conditions, COVID-19 is a, sig a significant medical risk for you. And that's a problem. And there's still a fair amount of it in communities. And we're not tracking it well because we no longer test as aggressively as we used to. We're not capturing the home tests, et cetera. And so declaring them that the emergency is over, I think, sort of sends a message, which is problematic. But I think the other problem with declaring the emergency over is that one of the benefits that we experience when we had this declaration of public health emergency is that we run interference around a lot of the inequities in our healthcare system. You know, we don't have universal healthcare. We don't have access to universal services. We don't have access to preventive care uniformly if you're uninsured. And what the declaration of the emergency did was made sure that testing would be available to everyone, vaccines would be available to everyone, regardless of ability to pay. 
And now we're basically returning to that pre-declaration, pre-emergency system that is inherently unfair. And it's particularly unfair for the uninsured members of our society and for racial and ethnic minorities who might be less likely to have insurance, et cetera. And so it's a return to business as usual. And I think our business as usual healthcare system leaves a lot to be desired. And that's unfortunate. We need to take a break. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Esther Chernak right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Esther Chernak, clinical professor at Drexel University's Dornsife School of Public Health. Can you just give me just some kind of bullet point things of how life will change when this public health emergency expires on May 11th, like from May 11th to May 12th, give me some things that I don't know, like the average person would notice, but things that go beyond just like a government declaration. I don't think it's going to be dramatic. I think we've already started to see things change just in the way we live our daily lives. You know, we're seeing mask requirements and mask mandates ebb and uh, kind of, re- you know, become less prominent for the most part in terms of say, for example, vaccines, not much is going to change. Right now, the availability of COVID-19 vaccines really depends on the federal stockpile. And as long as the federal stockpile exists, the vaccines will be free for everyone, regardless of insurance coverage. But once that stockpile becomes diminished and and, and the vaccines expire, there may be some issues around accessing vaccines, particularly for uninsured people. Vaccines will be available and free of charge for most people with public and private insurance. So that won't change dramatically. In our country, we have unfortunately low numbers of vaccine uptake, so that may or may not make a difference to most people. But the big issues will be once the supply runs out for uninsured individuals, then vaccine may be harder to come by and it may become expensive. But at the moment, vaccines will be accessible at least to people with public and private insurance. Similar issues with COVID testing. Tests may become more costly for people with insurance. After May 11th, people with traditional Medicare will no longer receive free at-home tests. People with private insurance may or may not have COVID test covered. There may or may not be cost sharing. Again, it will depend on different insurance plans and in the degree to which Medicaid covers these services will vary state by state. Uninsured people at this point were already paying full price for at-home tests. You may still be able to find them at free clinics and other subsidized settings. And the federal government has been distributing COVID testing through community health centers to try to target that population. But there may be less access to tests. And again, most insured people will be able to access testing, but there may be more of a cost share. Similar with COVID treatment, things like Paxlovid, there might be pharmaceutical treatments may be covered by insurance plans, but there may be more cost sharing once the emergency is over. And then there's issues around telemedicine, some of the flexibilities around telemedicine and telehealth that allowed providers to provide telehealth insurance across state lines. That was during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Department of Health and Human Services sort of waived the penalties around providing those services or regulations. Those will end. And so unless states change their policy, those sorts of flexibilities in terms of accessing health care will change. Those are the big things. And, and, you know, so for the most part, there's not going to be an immediate problem because we don't have a lot of vaccine demand right now. We don't have a lot of Paxlovid demand. We don't have a lot of testing demand. I mean, most public health agencies are sort of scaling back their their testing services, their vaccination clinics, et cetera, because there's not a lot of demand. So I think the average person living in a community isn't going to see, you know, a night and day kind of difference once the emergency is officially declared over. It strikes me that we seem to, I don't want to say 
get some things right, but we kind of got on a path to a more organized, a more just healthcare system. And the idea that it is just kind of being ripped up as just a matter of fact point of doing business, it almost seems kind of dystopian that we started doing some things well and better, but now that we're not as worried about the pandemic, we don't have to worry about that. It just, it's kind of depressing. I agree with you completely. You know, if you would ask me 10 years ago, what needs to happen to convince people that in this country we should have universal access to health care and health health services, I would say, well, if we had a pandemic, that would surely open up everyone's eyes to how important it is to have uniform, consistent access for everyone, regardless of their ability to pay for all basic services, access to health care, access to urgent services, access to basic medications. And yet here we are on the other side of a pandemic. And I think in many ways, there's even less political support for that than perhaps there was five or 10 years ago. And and I agree with you. It was obvious in the first you know few months of the pandemic that you couldn't have a system whereby huge segments of the population would not be able to access basic healthcare testing services, et cetera. So you see these quick declarations of emergency to rectify that, honestly, creating a situation that, you know, in most Western democracies where there's universal access to healthcare, people take for granted. And here we are, you know, it seems that the worst of this is behind us and we're willing to go back to this very inequitable system. And it's interesting to me, I, I, also work in a primary care clinic setting where I I take care of patients with general medical issues, but also HIV infection. And in in many ways, there's parallels to the way we responded to the HIV epidemic. And if you look at the Ryan White Care Act, which is this big federal source of funding for care services that has been around for several decades now, in many ways, it's sort of similar. That legislation does an, an end run around the fragmented healthcare system that we have. And it makes sure that states have money for everyone with HIV to be able to afford medications and have basic access to services, including testing and including social services, support services, et cetera. And you know, that has made a huge difference. The Ryan White Care Act has made a huge difference in terms of ensuring that people with HIV will have access to life-saving medications. You would never think of ending that, but it's a disease-specific solution. And, you know, there might be widespread access in those communities now for HIV testing and counseling and access to medications, but it's a siloed solution. And, you know, in a sense, the emergency declaration did that for COVID for a few years. We made it so that if you had COVID symptoms, you could easily get a test, you could easily access a medication to treat it, you could access inpatient services if you need to, you could access Paxlovid. Now that it doesn't seem so bad or we're getting used to living with it, we're willing to go back to this very unfair system that we are used to having in this, in this country. And it's extremely disappointing to me. I would, I absolutely agree with your sentiment. This does not seem to have crippled any kind of big industry and it helped a lot more people it just seems odd to me number one that we wouldn't continue down this road but number two that there's not much pushback like there's not a lot of people saying this is a mistake or right wrong putting arguments on the table it's just kind of ah, yeah that happens in may i think and we'll move on yeah i agree with you you'd think that people would after this experience in the last few years say you know, it was really fantastic that anyone who was concerned about COVID could access a test free of charge, could access a vaccine free of charge and accessibly. You'd think that there would be some extrapolation that, you know, this is actually a good, <laughs> a good standard in terms of accessing healthcare services. We should do this for everything. But somehow that's not where, where people are. Now, it may be that, you know, in the fall, if there's a push to 
you know, vaccinate more people again, if there's a new vaccine or a new variant, if we if we start to experience waves, we keep talking about waves and, you know, with the expectation that at some point this will be a seasonal virus in the way that influenza is clearly seasonal. You don't see it in the in the summer, but we do see it in the fall and winter. I think everyone's sort of thinking, hoping that COVID will be like that. It might be easier to focus attention. And that's and that's when people will start to perhaps want some of these services again. But right now, I think most people aren't aware of, of COVID transmission in communities outside of individual people they might know getting sick, unless you fall into the highly vulnerable group of people who was, for whom COVID is really a significant risk at this point. Yeah, I think most people are not, are not sorry to see those safeties disappear. I think we all hope we never have to go through not just COVID, but any kind of a pandemic. But if we do, are we more prepared? Are we pretty much back to where we were, you know, February of 2020? I, I guess I'm sure lessons were learned, but have they been learned to the point where they are policy or they are where they are best practices and they are across the board? So that's a, a really important question, and I think it's a it's a complex answer. I mean, surely we've learned a lot. One could imagine the lessons learned in the last few years being applied pretty quickly. The emergency use authorization process was fantastic. We we saw Operation Warp Speed was a huge success in terms of accelerating the development of really effective vaccines. And those things will certainly, you know, improve our preparedness for another pandemic. So much of how we do in another pandemic is a function of national leadership. You know, I think a national leader who is really capable of unifying response across 50 states, ensuring that there's are trying to mitigate some of the inequities that are going to happen inevitably in our system of health insurance, which is very spotty uh, and has so much state by state variability. That's going to be challenging. I think we really haven't seen major structural changes to our healthcare system or our public health system, really that would allow us to respond differently. But I think within individual healthcare systems, within individual public health departments, there's tremendous lessons learned. So much of the U.S. domestic response or capacity is really going to depend on resources. You know, the Biden administration has begun to direct a lot of resources to expand public health capacity in this country. And we'll see if that's sustained. I mean, we have the fun neglect cycle of public health that we're all used to, those of us who've been working for decades with public health. We'll see if some of those resources that are arriving now are truly sustained. That'll make a difference. So it's hard to know. I'd like to think we'll be in a better place, but we're certainly not in a great place. We still have lots of work to do. And from a global perspective, I don't have the confidence that another pandemic would change significantly, would be, would be handled significantly differently. We haven't had a lot of global leadership equity among, you know, low income versus high income countries with respect to vaccines and that kind of thing. So we have a ways to go. And pandemics, as you know, are global. We're not safe in this country until everybody is safe. And so we have a long, a long ways to go in terms of just global pandemic preparedness. If nothing else, is there any optimism that the COVID-19 pandemic experience has led to politicians, policymakers kind of understanding that this is something that needs to be funded consistently? Or if you and I talk in two years, is it just going to be the shoulder shrug of, well, you know, we haven't, COVID hasn't been in the headlines for 18 months and we had our funding cut by 30%. You know, like, is there any hope that lessons have been learned on that front? That's a great, I, I, I'd like, I, you know, I'm an optimist by nature and I'd like to say yes. 
at the moment, look, our current president is absolutely trying to direct funds towards local and state public health. And I think there's real recognition that those are the actors on the front line that need resources and where pandemic response begins. In many ways, it's one of the most important levels of response. But I am not confident, honestly, that the majority of our elected officials agree with him or feel that way. And if we are living in resource poor environments, I'm not at all confident, and maybe I'm just, I've been around too long, but I'm, I'm not at all confident that five or 10 years from now, we won't see levels of funding in public health agencies mirror what they were before the pandemic. I'm not sure. I think that there's lots of needs in this country. We don't have consensus on any issues, much less pandemic preparedness and public health. So I'm not confident that we've changed the number of minds we need to change or all the minds we need to change on that front. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.